Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and you're about to listen to the Kick Aspirational podcast. I've made, um, last week I was with uh, Dick Metz, who's a legend in the history of Laguna Beach, the history of surfing. Um, we get into his story in two epic episodes. <laughs> they, um, I, I went to Sun Valley, Idaho to in- interview him. He's 90 years old. He's looks like he's 70. He acts like he's 30. Um, he's an amazing man. Uh, and to, just to put it in perspective, this guy, you know, graduated high school in Laguna Beach in 1947 when the world was a very different place. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the things I wanted to reference in this, in this, uh, podcast, um, because I, what I was trying to do and what I'm, I think we did very well was capture what life was like, um, in a place like in a coastal beach town, like Laguna Beach in the thirties and forties, and then later in the sixties and fifties and sixties, um, because the culture, the lifestyle that was created in our town really was the foundation for the action sports industry. And, and one of the principal people that created that, that foundation is Dick Metz. Um, he'll tell his story, but just, you know, to put it briefly, uh, he, he really partnered with Hobie Alter, who, you know, with Grubby Clark created surfboards that could be mass produced and were light enough to carry and throw on the roof of your car that helped support the craze of, of you know, kind of a beach lifestyle, beach culture, post-Gidget, you know, the, the movie Gidget. And, um, and then Dick and Hobie uh, built out the whole idea of action sports shops where you had skiing, and, you know, skis and surfboards and, and all the clothing that went with that. Um, and so what I was trying to capture with, with Dick was what, what was life like before that? You know, he explains um, a lot of the, that in detail. And, and part of what he gets into is, you know, and you'll, you'll hear him ask me, is it okay if I tell these stories? Because some of them are a little racy. They're from a different time. And they may not fit with our, you know, some of the modern ideas of morality. But um, one of my favorite authors is uh, George MacDonald Frazier, who wrote The Flashman Papers, um, uh, about this, you know, this, uh, he, he writes military historical fiction, um, but he also wrote his own memoir, which is about the Burma War, called Quartered Safe Out of Here. And in the introduction to that, George MacDonald Frazier talks about the fact that when he writes history, you know, our, our sensibilities and moralities change. And he said, I'm not writing this for people in 2012 when he wrote it. He said, I'm writing this like I recall it, as I remember it, at that time, in the nineteen, in nineteen, you know, late the middle nineteen forties, just before the end of the war, and um, and he, he puts that caveat on it because I think he wants the reader, or in this case, I would like the listener, to suspend their morality, to suspend their judgment, um, and not try and put your modern ideas or modern sensibilities on something that happened in the past when people thought differently, had different ethics, and were living in a different time. And, uh, and so I'm very excited about this podcast. It's, um, it's one that I think will endure and that is really important. There's actually two big episodes. One episode is, um, is about life in Laguna Beach, uh, you know, before the certain, that basically life in Laguna Beach, the lifestyle that led up to, you know, this, this, um, explosion of interest in beach lifestyle and and the action sports culture and then the second piece is a story uh that i have asked um dick to go into detail 
about traveling around the world. Um, and, you know, he did this in the uh, early, I believe it was like 61 to 64. He did a three-year around-the-world trip um, by tramp steamer and hitchhiking through Africa and, and Asia and, you know, the South Seas and Europe. That's really remarkable. And that trip created the, basically was the, was the roadmap that Bruce Brown, one of Dick's friends, used to create Endless Summer. And Endless Summer became one of the most famous surf films of all time that got people really interested in the idea of surfing. When my brother and I in the eight, 1980s, early 80s, were figuring out how to surf on Lake Michigan, you know, and windsurf on Lake Michigan, because we had grown up racing sailboats, um, my dad brought home endless, the endless summer and said, "You guys need to watch this. You know, if you're really getting into surfing, because he remembered seeing it in a high school gymnasium, which is how these movies were shown, where Bruce Brown would come in and and roll the roll the you know the celluloid and narrate it as it went. Um, you know, this is how if you've ever seen you know the ski movies by Warren Miller, it's the same idea. Warren Miller used to go around." with reels of film and show the film and tell the stories. So this is what I'm trying to capture. I'm trying to capture what actually happened with Dick Metz, how it actually occurred, and not just the pretty parts, but uh, all the details. And it's, I find it, I'm, so I'm, in the interview, I'm trying to get him to be as honest and open as he can be. And I think he does an amazing job, and I applaud it, and I love it. I think it's, uh, this is a real, these two are real gems. They're long. Um, there are a couple hours, and you can take your time listening to them, but I hope you enjoy them. I hope you suspend your 2019 brain and try and get into Dick's in the 19, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, because they're really, really great. So thank you very much for listening to the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is, uh, you know, it's all about helping people break through barriers in their life and interviewing people who've done it in different ways in the past and are working on it today and in the future. So I hope you enjoy it. Get out there, whatever you do this week, please be Kick Aspirational. This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. I'm Dave Vanderveen, and uh, obviously this podcast is all about helping people break through barriers in their life and uh, and discover who they can become. And, and today I'm in Sun Valley, Idaho, with a Laguna Beach legend, Dick Metz, who, um, who's kind of done everything and been everywhere. But but today we're going to, I think we're going to break it into two parts because Dick has uh, some amazing journeys that we're going to listen to. And uh, I thought what we do is break it into one kind of about the golden era of Laguna Beach uh, and a lot of the people and brands that were created during that area, the businesses and the, and the really kind of adventure lifestyle that was created there. And then second, um, we'll talk to Dick about some of his world travels that inspired uh, films like The Endless Summer and uh, I think a lot of the wanderlust that, uh, that surfers in particular share. So Dick, welcome. Thank you for inviting me to Sun Valley and for making your, your space available today to record this. Well, I'm delighted to meet you. I'm glad you're here. It's a fun town and uh, has a lot of exciting things to see and I'll be glad to give you a tour later on. So uh, whenever you want to start, I'm ready. Well, we are started. So, <laughs> okay. so Dick, let me, um, let me ask you just to introduce yourself a little bit. You're, you're born in Laguna Beach, is that right? That's right. And uh, how old are you, Dick? Uh, I'm 90, but I hate saying that because <laughs> I take out girls way younger and it kind of ruins my, uh, my lifestyle a little bit. But I'll, actually, I'll be 90 next week. Wow. And, um, and I'm, I'm going to say this. Um, you know, you 
do not look your age. You don't act your age. Uh, Whatever your secrets are, I hope we discover those in this podcast because those alone will be worth the price of admission. Well, the secret is fast motorcycles, young girls, and small waves. (laughs) Small waves? (laughs) Yeah, I can't ride big waves, and I can't get up quick enough. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> I got to get a motorcycle. Um, but the, uh, no, but this is great. Um, so, so tell us a little bit, you know, I, you just did a, a talk at the surfing, you've done a number of talks at the surfing heritage oh, yeah, foundation sure. in San Clemente, a very, really famous museum that people should visit. So where's surfing heritage? Tell, tell us a little bit about your connection to surfing heritage first. Well, I started it. I was the founder of it, uh, 20, over 20 years ago, and it's now located, uh, in San Clemente, uh, on Collier Glacia. Okay. It's in an industrial area, but we've already made plans to move down to the Dana Point Harbor. Oh, wow. And the new development, they're going to remodel the entire harbor. Yep. And the city and the county, uh, Orange County, city of uh, Dana Point, and the developers have all agreed to put us in a central location, and we will be the focal point of the whole harbor. And the reason being is that people that come to several of the exclusive wealthy hotels in Dana Point, really, Dana Point's only a new town and doesn't have any great history other than surfing history. And um, so people come and stay in the hotels and they go to Laguna because it's a cutesy town. It's close by. And the people obviously want them to stay in Dana Point, have lunch there, spend an extra night there. So the hotels want to have some kind of an entertainment and focal center that would include kids as far as the surfboard museum. But we also put on art shows, mostly surf art, uh, music stuff and so there'll be a big grass area in front of the museum in the summertime we'll have nightly uh, music festivals and art shows and things that will include the whole family well you know i think it would be i'm really excited about how dana point is reinventing itself right now it's becoming a beautiful it's always been a nice town but it's becoming a beautiful destination i think that's right well with the harbor and now there's going to be things to do up until more recently dana point was kind of a wide spot in the road right on the way to san diego and there really wasn't much of a town. When I grew up there, the Hobie shop, we put it down there because nobody else was there and we could make all the noise we wanted. Uh, And there was no post office, there's no fire department, no police department, and we could have wild, crazy parties and nobody bothered us. (laughs) Is that when there was still a surf break down at Killer Dana? Well, yes. Uh, We surfed there at Salt Creek because there was nothing at Salt Creek. That was hidden from the highway and we could build fires down there and stay all night on the beach uh, and Dana Point of course didn't have the harbor so when they built the harbor uh, it destroyed Killer Dana a surf spot and it really really hindered Doheny because now a northwest swell doesn't break at Doheny right. so Doheny only breaks now on a south swell right yeah, I've you know I've surfed um, Killer Dana on on really big days or whatever breaks are still out there with like Ian Cairns and some different people. Sure. Because they, uh, you know, on big days you still get a couple waves. That's out right. There. Breaks on the point there, yeah. but you hit the breakwater, you can't ride it very far. Right. And I think that, you know, the images that, you know, like um, peanut and different people have from that era are really incredible. I mean, the, the, not only the, the shape of the wave, but the distance that it broke, right? Well, you could ride all the way to the beach, you know, 
How many uh, yards was that roughly? Well, it had to be. You could ride on a right wave 400 yards. That's incredible. Yeah, you know, long waves and big waves. They were big, fat waves, a lot of water in them. Yeah. They didn't break particularly hard. It wasn't a pipeline yeah. kind of a wave, but it was a it was big. You got big, big open face, yeah. and, a, and, a, and especially yeah. for the boards at the time, probably. Well, we wave, did right? see. We when I first surfed there, we had no fins. We're talking about 100 <laughs> pound redwoods wow. with no fin, and you know you could barely get it going on an angle. You ended up riding a lot of white water. Wow. So you you started so you were pre kookbox you were riding solid solid redwood boards. Yeah, basically. I still have my original board that Peanuts made. Oh wow, one hundred nine pound solid redwood, no fin. Oh my goodness! So it's in the museum, uh, and along with other boards like that, or that same era. So you know the boards were a total evolution from solid redwood, and it was always to make them lighter. Yeah, and how, then, how much did the boards weigh? Well, a solid redwood, depending on the kind of wood, would weigh from 85 to 120 pounds. My goodness. You and don't want to get hit by those. No, you don't want to get hit, and there's no leash, and you probably didn't want one. And anyway, <laughs> yeah, right. but uh, there, there weren't enough guys surfing. When I started surfing, I'm sure there wasn't 100 people in all of California that surfed. My goodness. Uh, and they were scattered up and down the coast. And it was just, and you didn't drive them. You couldn't carry the board. You know, right. I I would leave it at the beach in Laguna and go to school. <laughs> and sometimes when I'd come down Park Avenue, uh, the board wasn't there, and I'd see out in the water some friend of mine yeah. was on, and they would just use it. They couldn't carry it home. Right. They no, wouldn't no steal, steal it. it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you have to pay somebody and, to steal And there it. was no racks. And the, the cars we had then, you know, were Model A Fords. Wow, I wow. mean, so there was, you couldn't pick it up and put it on the roof of a car. Sure. So it was, uh, you just left it at the beach. That's where it was. And even when I went to Hawaii in uh, 1951, uh, the boards were all in lockers on the beach in Waikiki, and right. nobody was really surfing the North Shore then. Because there again, you didn't have a fin. Without right. a fin, you know, you you were, it was another sport. Sure. And if, so, so did you ever meet Tom Blake? Oh, yeah, I knew him well. I have an original Tom Blake uh, cook box in our okay. in our living room on the you know in the ceiling. Sure, but the uh, I, you know I I love that board because that was a, I like points in evolution, right? right? Where you went from solid boards to the hollow boards that were a little lighter. I mean a, a hundred eighty five or hundred pound board that's heavier than a kayaker. Oh yeah, yeah, it's huge, heavy, and you just would drag the nose of the board into <laughs> the water and get it floating, and then it wasn't so bad, but. What was the finish? You're putting spar varnish on that? How are you sealing it? Well, th that's the whole thing. See, they hard at first you didn't have anything. Yeah. And then uh, shellac right. came into being. But shellac would peel off. It would get hot and yeah. peel off. And so it wasn't until really shellac came along that they would put balsa wood in between the redwood uh. to make the board a little bit lighter. So the evolution was solid redwood yeah. and then mixed with redwood and balsa, but that didn't really work either. It made it a little bit lighter, but balsa wood, even though it had shellac on it, would if you break the seal, Starts balsa wood soaks up water like a sponge. Right. It turns black and it's rotten. So that's not very successful. So it, when you're at the museum and we could walk around and show you, we have examples of all that, and you can see it was all trial and error. And then they did the semi-hollow. The Tom Blakes were instrumental in doing that. And um, but that didn't work either because the screw holes or the nail holes leaked, right. and they 
were semi-hollow, so you had a plug in them, so they would fill up with water. I used to surf those, and once you got about 30 pounds of water in, the board's going down, and once it starts to go down, you can't stop it, and you've lost a surfboard. So when it starts to fill up, you've got to get to the beach right away, and that's why the pictures, the early pictures, would always have boards standing on their tail blocks, pull the plug in. Now, the plug we had then was a cork, just a wine cork. Oh, wow. And it, but some of the Tom Blakes had a screw hole that made that hole a little tighter, but it still leaked on where all the nail holes were. Right. I, I've got one that has the brass brass plate uh, on brass plate, the, the screw and on over. that brass plate it says different things. Who made them? Tom Blake licensed four different companies right. to make them. So that that's one. Mine was from the Catalina Equipment Company. Okay, and, and then it, there's the L.A. Ladder Company. Right, right. And, uh, <laughs> so there are several of them. We have examples of all those in the museum. And I think I have the book from your museum, the Tom Blake book. Yeah, that, from, that has yeah, all the, we did all the drawings uh-huh. and plans in there. Well, Tom was instrumental, and that was in the mid '30s. But that didn't work either <laughs> right. because they're more square railed. <laughs> right. So the rails were no good. Uh, With the real penny tail. It, yeah. But it was a little lighter. Yeah. So these were all steps in the evolution along the way. So there was the balsa wood connection. Then there was the semi hollow, um, and then you went to all balsa. But that didn't really work until the English. This was was the biggest advent in my mind of of surfing and changed the whole sport radically. During the Second World War, England invented a bomber called the Mosquito Bomber. Right. And they made it out of balsa wood, or a good part of, out of I'm balsa afraid. wood. But they learned that balsa wood had no rigidity, okay. so they had to invent fiberglass and resin to wrap the balsa wood to give it the rigidity so it would work on the airplane. So it was right at the end of the war in 1946 when uh, two, and we have these two boards, the first two boards in the museum that ever had fiberglass on them. Wow. And two friends of mine from Laguna, uh, Burhead and Hammerhead were their nicknames. <laughs> they were engineers and worked at Douglas Aircraft in Long Beach. And because of their position, England had sent Douglas scraps of fiberglass and resin, and they took some of that and put on the tail and the nose block of their boards, the redwood boards that had balsa in the between. And so... Right away, that bonded, and it was waterproof. Is that why they? So why did they put on the nose and tail just to protect? Well, the, the nose dings? and the tail were the places that got dinged mm. the most seriously, usually, because right. when you lose a board, hit a rock, and they were thinner on the nose and the tail than it was on the rails. So you had the balsa wood down the center, protected on the rails by the hard redwood but when you got to the nose of the board then the balsa came right to the edge of the nose and then they fiberglassed that so once that uh became apparent that that was going to work and they got more uh commercial uh, fiberglass came into being in 47 8 uh, and it really wasn't you know people didn't know what to do with it but surfers knew and so it really wasn't until the 48 49 50 that it started being used in fiber on fiberglass surfboards all balsa so then it went from a 80 to 120 pound board to 40 it cut the weight in, in half. half yeah and it was but that was was a big advantage. And were there fins yet or no, no fins? Well, that, then we could put a fin on. See, earlier fins, and we have examples of that, where the fin was maybe an inch or two right. inches deep, and they screwed it into the wood. Right. But as soon as it hit the beach, it would break off. So as soon as we had fiberglass, we laid up a seven, eight-inch deep fin mm-hmm. and put six layers of cloth 
between the board and on the uh, fin. And so then the fin was locked on pretty much and didn't break off unless it was unusual. So that, that changed everything. So now you had a 40-pound or even 35 or 30-pound, depending on the size of the board, right. of, of solid balsa board with now a six, seven, eight-inch fin on it. Right. So it made all the difference in the world, and it changed the whole industry along with the end of the war, which allowed uh, people had jobs when the war was over, people had money. And see, the work week when I was growing up the work week was uh, six days a week, and you got Sunday off. Right. Well, after the war, uh, veterans coming home, they had GI Bill, they had money, they're going to school. People got money for recreation. It goes to a five-day work week. So the whole culture of our lifestyle had changed more radically. More money to And do more to spend. Yeah. You know? So surfing became popular. I and mean, that's when it started to hit its heyday was in the 50s. And it was really the mid-60s when we sold the most volume of boards. And the growth was the most. Now you say we, so so let's back up a little bit. <laughs> you were, because um, I want to get to who you were selling, creating and selling boards with. Who, who was it? Just uh, well, Hobie and I, uh, I. I got to know him early on, yeah. and so Hobie and I became good friends and ultimately business partners. And Hobie, you know, we have Hobie's name on so many products. He was an inventor. He was a an unusual guy, very talented. Uh, he didn't go to college, went a semester to uh, <laughs> junior college, but didn't go anyplace. Uh, but he just had that. He was a Thomas Edison, yeah. and he invented stuff. I've been with him for 60, 70 years over a period of time, and we'd be on his boat or sailing around. He wanted to go to a hardware store and buy something. Couldn't find what he wanted and say, that's junk. I can go home and make a better one than that. Right. And he would, and he did. So... Hobie would get, he was fascinated about making new products. And when it got about 95% there, he would become kind of bored with it and get off on something else. And I couldn't create anything, but I was pretty good with numbers and knew a lot of people and grew up at the beach, which Hobie hadn't. And so I would go off and sell the stuff. And as a result, we built many different Hobie corporations. There's was Hobie uh, glasses, there was Hobie apparel, there was Hobie sports, there was Hobie surfboards, you know, it just goes Hobie on and Cat, on. Sailboard. Hobie Cats, so, so, all so that stuff yeah. was a different company that we forged depending on how much money we need or who was going <laughs> to run it or whatever it was. So it, it appeared that to the public that Hobie sat at the end of a big board of directors table and ran this empire and that isn't at all what it was like. But was it kind of project to project defense? Well, he, he started basically product? on the surfboard. So right. that you know, he was a good athlete and he was a good surfer, became a good surfer. Uh, and he was good at whatever he did. I mean yeah. he he was just all around good. So he made the surfboards and when those got going really good and he got married, had three kids, and he made a living out of selling surfboards, but during the winter, we didn't have wetsuits. The water's cold, and um, there's not a whole lot to do in the wintertime at Laguna, Dana Point. So he wanted something to do when the wind would blow, and we started playing with PCATs. And a friend of ours, Carter Pyle, was... What are PCATs? PCAT was the first catamaran. Well, I won't say it was the first catamaran, but it was the first one that we knew about. Okay. Fiberglass hulls with a solid wing on it, but it weighed about 
2,000 pounds, 2,500, I don't know how much Was it more typically or on a dock? And it was a, a symmetrical hulls with uh, rudders okay. on it. And so we played with that, and Hobie thought what you had to belong to, in, in our area anyway, yeah. you had to belong to a yacht club to be able to launch it. Right. And so, okay, so they'd pull them out in dollies or something. Yeah. yeah. And so we didn't want to go to Newport, so right. it had to be something we could do at Dana. This was before the harbor in Dana Point, so it was just By the way, I always joke that my, my passport doesn't let me go to Newport. I can only go south to go surfing. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> you don't want to go to Newport. You always want to go further south. So it's too crowded up in Newport. <laughs> that's right. So that was the impetus of what kind of a boat we laid on the beach. You know, the beach was our playground in our home especially in laguna right there's no harbor there's no harbor anything there so we'd lay on the sand and we'd smooth it off and we'd be laying in a circle three or four or five of us and make that circle would smooth out the sand and that would be our blackboard and we would play games there we would decide what we're going to do in our future lives you just use that all the time you could erase it and start over real easy and so we started laying on the sand and hobie's drawn boats how we could do a boat that you didn't have to go to the harbor and that you could uh, launch it from the beach through the surf and so in order to do that you had that was the that was basically the design criteria yeah that was the criteria it had to be light enough that you could drag on the beach and you could push it through the surf well that eliminated the pcat hobie bought a pcat and carter Pyle, the guy that invented that was a good friend of ours anyway we went to parties with him and i lived with him in hawaii he was in the service in the navy in hawaii when i first went there and i had already been out of the service so um Grab a quick drink there. Yeah. Um, so I hope he played with that, but it was too heavy, symmetrical hulls, and with the dagger boards going down, you're going to rip the hull out when you come under the sand. Sure. So Hobie made an asymmetrical hull, which made we didn't, and with the deep rudders that reacted as dagger boards to some degree. And then popped up when you ran it and up. And right? those automatically kicked up. And then instead of a solid wing tying the two hulls together, he made it out of a trampoline, which took off about 500 pounds wow. of a solid fiberglass solid wing that a PCAT had. Right. So all of a sudden then that he was off on another tangent. So you've got and, two and, fiberglass pontoons effectively with aluminum frame and a pontoon and a, and a trampoline. trampoline. Is that right? Yeah, tying it all together. How, how much did a Hobie cat weigh? Uh, sorry about that. No, it's okay. How, uh, how much did a Hobie cat weigh, roughly? Do you remember? Oh, uh, like six hundred pounds. I don't think it weighed that much. I was going to say five hundred. I honestly don't know. Now the fourteen was the first one. Yeah. It was obviously smaller and and lighter. Yeah. Uh, the sixteen was the next one. It got bigger with a jib on it. Right. So, there's a beautiful uh, bronze statue of Hobie uh, sailing at, a Hobie cat at, at, in, Dana in, at Dana Point. Yeah, and that's a 14 footer. That's a 14. Yeah. yeah. So it had a eight. Oh, it was a 14 foot. No, it was an eight, 16 foot mast. I had to stop and think about that. Yeah. But it all came down and collapsed, and you could take it on a trailer and tow it real easy and sail it off any beach or any lakes. We'd go to Lake Havasu and all over racing lakes. Right. And we'd sleep either at night on the trampoline or, or if it was raining it. underneath the trampoline. Yeah. So it was uh, served as our motel and, uh, <laughs> and our toy, uh, toy at the same time. So it was a great invention. But Hobie then 
was through a surfboards base. We kept making surfboards. So, so he started out. He started out shaping. He started shaping under, like under the deck at his uncle's house or something. No, no. His dad. What happened is, Hobie grew up in Ontario, California, okay. Okay. which is about sixty miles from Laguna Inland. Right. And his dad bought a summer home uh, right where we were playing at Oak Street. Right at Oak Street. Yeah, it's still there. Still there. And um, so his dad came down on the weekends, and so Hobie came down in high school. He was a freshman in high school and saw us surfing there and thought that looked like fun. So he made himself, he was really good at wet, at uh, wood shop in okay. school. Yeah. That was his uh, crowning point. And uh, so he made a, a surfboard. Talked to Walter Hoffman, and Walter told him oh, where wow. to get some balsa wood and resin. And so, was Walter Hoffman living in Laguna then? And well, Walter said, oh, "What happened is Laguna was a little bitty town." Yeah. And I grew up there, uh, as other kids did. But when I started kindergarten, there was only seventeen in our kindergarten class. How many people roughly lived in Laguna then? Do you think a thousand? Wow, it's twenty-four thousand today. Just to put yeah, it in perspective, yeah. yeah. And but it still isn't big. It's still a small it, town in Southern but, California. But the difference was then it was all behind Lagoon and all around it it was farms, right. orange groves. So there was there was no Irvine, there was no El Toro, there was none of that. No Aliso Viejo. There's none of that. <laughs> yes. So as a result, there wasn't like Laguna appears bigger because people drive for lunch, you know, ten miles away inland right. and come to Laguna. So <clears throat> Walter Hoffman grew up in Hollywood, and his dad, Rube Hoffman, I knew his dad well, he bought a summer home in Laguna as well. And Rennie Yater, he grew up in Pasadena. The, the famous Yater Spoon, a real yeah. famous surfboard from well, Apocalypse Now. And what, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, Rennie and Walter and Hobie, all those guys grew up in an inland town, but their parents bought beach homes in Laguna, and as a result, they came down in the summertime. And because there was no air conditioning then, and was hotter inland so the moms and the kids would come to the beach house in the summer and cool off the dads would come down on the weekends and drive back and forth to LA during the week wow so that's just kind of the way it was in the 30s and the and the 40s the war of course stopped everything but it was that way really until after the 50s how, how old were you when the war started uh, I was I almost was drafted you know I was 14 15. And were you and did you end up going into the war? No, I went in right after the war. So okay. I was in the Korean War. Oh wow! And then during, you know, because I finished school. In those days, if uh, the war was about over, so they quit the draft, and if you passed a test every year at college, you could that allow you to go one more year to college. Okay. So I kept passing the test, <laughs> and I went six years to college. But after six years, they said that's it. You know, so then I got well, I joined the Navy because I had a college degree, and I was going to be an officer, Navy officers candidate school but i was in a car wreck broke my back oh, wow. and so the navy i was only in the navy about a week and they discharged me okay and then the the army draft the physical uh, requirements for the army were less so they drafted me in the army oh boy you thought you were out of it then, you pulled <laughs> yeah, back then in. i went back in yeah. the army but i did get actually i wasn't in all that was in seven months is all i got a medical discharge but then i joined the merchant marine okay so i was in all three services Wow. And went to Korea in the Merchant Marine. So I was, was in Korea during the war. Supplying, supplying the war. Yeah, taking supplies there. And uh, growing up in Laguna, I think it's really fascinating. You know, um, I've talked a lot about and written a lot. I used to write a column in, in the Laguna paper 
Um, and a lot of what I would write about was kind of the, you know, the ethos of Laguna. Because sure. I came later. I uh-huh. didn't move there till 2002, but I was, I've, I've, been, an, um, I've been an entrepreneur. I'm, an, I'm really um, fascinated by entrepreneurship, particularly around adventure and lifestyle brands. We built an energy drink brand in Laguna called uh-huh. Excess that's uh-huh. all about supporting that lifestyle, giving you the fuel to do more. Uh-huh. And, you know, hearing about, you know, you hear about Hobie. You don't hear about everybody that's supporting him. He's kind of the icon of the brand. But hearing about the way that at that time, you know, in, in my mind, you know, you guys could shape boards on the beach. You could you could leave sailboats on the beach back then. There were sure. so many things you could do. And one of the big questions I had is so, you know, if Laguna was built on all of this mentality of creation and adventure and trying and testing, you know, would Laguna Beach attract a new generation of entrepreneurs, you know, or have we scared them all out of town? <laughs> You've moved to Sun Valley, effectively. I mean, you're, you're, you're back and forth. Well, but we, we what did was move it like to, back then? Well, yeah. we moved to Dana Point because Laguna, Laguna was ahead of itself, and Laguna was a magical town. Uh, Steinbeck actually lived there for a while. Where did he live? <clears throat> well, I don't even remember because I was a little kid, but he <laughs> yeah, was yeah. there. But uh, we had... Um, well, the, the way it really started, in my mind, the way I saw it happen was uh, Laguna was artsy. Yeah, and the it was fest- an art colony. It right? was an art colony. And we had a lot of art people there and creative kind of people. So during, uh, before in the 30s, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby started the Del Mar racetrack okay. further south in Del Mar. So the movie stars in that era were not what they are today. They worked in a lot, right. five days a week, and then they'd get off early. So on Friday afternoons, the, a lot of the movie stars and the people that support them, the art people that built the sets and the artistic guys would get in their cars and drive to Laguna on Friday afternoon. Right. And so Saturday then, they'd spend Friday night there. Saturday morning, Bing Crosby and Bob Hope and several of their friends would drive on to Del Mar, watch the races Saturday, Saturday night, they'd stay there, Sunday would be the races, and then when the last race was over, about four in the afternoon, they'd drive back to Laguna and spend Sunday night there, and then Monday morning, they'd go back to their lots. So you had this movie industry function that created our lifestyle in Laguna, and along with the movie stars came the artist that built the sets, but they had no interest in horse racing, and they tended to be, that's how Laguna got to be a gay community, where these artists that came from Hollywood worked in the movies, and they just stayed there for the weekend. And so we had, and that's how the Festival of Arts ended up starting. The local Laguna people and artists uh, started showing their art, and then other uh, artistic people from Hollywood or wherever started spending time in Laguna, and then the Living Pictures came about because right. of their influence and their direction. Right. The, so the Festival of the Arts for listeners. That's the there's what they call Living Pictures. Is this, there's a French term for it? I can't remember right now. But it's basically they they create a set where people are live actors are uh, lit f- and. Ha- Put cosmetics on so it looked like a painting, right? Yeah, so a real painting, like the I was in the first living pictures. Oh, wow. And so they pick like maybe 
15 pictures that famous pictures blue boy pinky right. the last supper all of those were the ones that they started with and so the artist would paint a frame and the background exactly like the real painting right. and then they would have a live person in a costume that was exactly like it was in the original and painting. When you're sitting in the audience, it looks it, just it like It looks like a painting. And the guy doesn't stunning. move. Right. And the more uh, experience they had, the more complex the pictures became. Right. One of my favorites was Dempsey knocking an Argentine fighter out of the ring. Furpo was his name. <laughs> and he's hanging by wires but not moving right. as he's being knocked out of the ring. That's amazing. And that was a really hard one to do. The discus thrower was another right. statue that they did. Yeah, they did Venus de Mayo. Well. Yeah, 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 they do. So you've got a naked gal, which always uh, got the guys interested. Yeah. And I love being backstage because they're painting, uh, you know, the girl would be all be painted in white. Yeah. And then they have her arms hidden behind the curtain right and uh i was never in a statue but i was in a um uh who was the artist that painted on saturday evening post uh, oh, oh norman rockwell norman rockwell yeah and it was one called the doctor and i was sitting in a high chair and it was the picture was um the kid in the high chair, the doctor giving him a teaspoon of cod liver oil, <laughs> and his mother, the kid's mother, standing at the side, kind of worried, and how's her yeah, darling anxious. baby going to be? And I was a kid in the high chair, and the doctor was giving me the cod liver oil. So, so that was the picture I was in oh, that's awesome. in like 1936 or 7, I don't remember what year. So we just bought uh, two, we just bought some cottages in Woods Cove that are close to the Betty Davis house. And they were built in 1921. So is that before? What, what, what year were you born? 29. 29. Yeah, I'm sorry. I wasn't doing the math. Um, so, yeah, I know the house well. Betty Davis lived there. Victor Mature lived in Laguna. Uh, there was a lot of movie stars. And in those days, the town was so small, there was only a couple of restaurants. And my dad's restaurant and bar yeah. was right on the beach, which is now all grass. In, on Main Beach. In Main Beach and Laguna. So the restaurant was right in front of the lifeguard tower. Oh, wow. So at first... Before that was built, in 19- what was it called? The broiler. The broiler. But before that, my dad had. So when before I was born, um, my dad had graduated from school and gotten married to my mom, and they actually lived in Big Bear. Okay. My mom taught the whole school in Big Bear. How big was Big Bear? But it must have been uh, teeny, tiny. Tiny, you yeah. know. And, and my mom taught grade one through eight, and then after the eighth grade, you had to go to San Bernardino to go to high school. There okay. wasn't enough people in Big Bear to have a high school. <laughs> so my dad was the manager of the Safeway store okay. in Big Bear, and he wanted to move to the beach. And so he got to know the different salesmen selling meat and whatever. And one day, uh, the meat salesman told my dad that there was a restaurant in Laguna that was not, and it was during the Depression. See, it was the Depression right. was from the 20s, so right? mid 30s. Yeah. And so things were really tough, and jobs were hard to come by, and people were going broke and so forth. So <clears throat> this restaurant was for sale, uh, but all you had to do was pay the meat bill. So the meat company yeah. was owed, let's say, a couple hundred bucks. They wanted him. And they wanted their money. Right. And anybody who would pay the meat bill then could have the restaurant. And it was a dining car. So my dad went down and paid the meat bill and 
uh, got the, the restaurant called the Laguna Diner. It was an old railroad car okay. right where the grass is now in the same location. So, so it was like a Pullman car effectively? Yeah, okay. and it had windows in it, and it was just a dining room. How cool. It was the Laguna Diner. So that my dad ran for, um, well, for about five years, I guess. I don't know exactly when he came down and took it over. But uh, I think it was in 36 that the guy that owned the land was in L.A. My dad never owned the land. He just owned the business. And the person that owned the land said, we've got to get rid of that railroad car and you do more business. We'll build you a real restaurant. So in 19, I have pictures of all that in the paper, which I delivered, uh, uh, South, South Coast News. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they had drawings of the new restaurant. It was all modern. The dining room facing the Coast Highway and the bar and the little dance area on the boardwalk. Oh, wow. So that was face the ocean. So along with that, then next door in the same building, there was a Francis Shoe Store and then a Thomas Camera Store. Oh, so wow. they were connected in the same building, but it was a round building and modern for that period, obviously. Yeah. So once they built that, my dad moved the railroad car down to where the Coast Inn is now. Okay. And, and he ran that as well and then had the broiler as the new one. Oh, so, wow. so that changed the downtown. And as a result, when we were talking earlier about the movie people yeah. going to Del Mar, here was the, the main restaurant and bar right on the beach. So that was where they hung out. And so, you know, I was down there after school and all during the summertime. And my dad would teach me. And when he would, you know, he's doing the books, going to the bank with the money. So he'd send me to the bank with the money, make a deposit or get some change. And then gradually was teaching me how to run a business. Yeah. <clears throat> and then he taught me how to tend bar. How old, how old are you at this time? I mean, 10, 12, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, just to grow over years, you know. That's amazing. And so it, it started when, I was, when right? I was, well, it started before that. When my dad had the dining car, and this is interesting from the surf perspective, yeah. you know, we got two subjects going, Laguna That's history okay. and the good. surfing. But when I was, when he had the dining car, my dad was the cook. He could look out the windows right on the beach and see me. First, he put me when I was two years old in a playpen on the sand and he could look out the window and see me and I was probably just in diapers or running around in little short pants or something and as I got bigger I got out of the playpen and then uh, Peanuts Larson and Hevs McClellan two local Laguna guys that were best friends and they, it was during the depression they didn't have jobs and they were <clears throat> living on the beach and so they would go abalone diving, which there was plenty of then, and lobsters, there were plenty of, there was no demand. Yeah. And they would trade those to my dad for a beer or a hamburger or whatever. And my dad got to know him real well. And so at one point he said, because by then I was, let's say, four or five years old and running around, but my dad couldn't always see me. I'd run down the beach and in those days there was no concern about kidnapping you know course, that was yeah. that was not never even happened back then, not, right? yeah. never happened and so i'd just be running around as a kid but my dad was afraid i might get in the water and drown or whatever so he said to peanuts and hevs watch my kid and i'll give you a beer and a hamburger at the end of the day <laughs> so they didn't give a rat's ass about me really <laughs> but i was their meal them. ticket yeah, yeah. and so they just took me along and they'd go out on the dory they had a rowboat yeah. and they'd row out by bird rock and we had a pier in laguna in those days 
and that, on Bird Rock? On Bird Rock. It came across Bird Rock. So Bird and, Rock is on the north end of Main Beach right. where, where Heisler Park is now. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, there was a then there was a pier that went from Heisler Park effectively to or was stuck on top of Bird Rock. Yeah, it went. It was built right across the water. Then Bird Rock on top of Bird Rock. Then it went out another hundred yards. In those oh, wow. days, we had gambling ships three miles offshore. You couldn't gamble <laughs> in California, but if you got to the ship yeah. three miles off, so you could walk out on the pier and they'd have shore boat. A boat would pick you up yeah. and take you out to the gambling boat. Oh, Wow. Three miles off off the pier, so <laughs> the pier was being used, and that was all. There's big rocks around there, so there's a lot of lobster and abalone there. Sure. And peanuts and heads would go out in the rowboat, and they'd go to other places too, and bring stuff to my dad. And so that's how they just took me with them. So when I was five years old. They would take me out on the boat. They would go to San Onofre. They had this redwood board that I still have in the museum that Peanuts made right in front of my dad's restaurant, shaping it on the beach, you know, not on a sawhorse, but he just laid it across their boat, which is a little skiff that was on the beach. And they could, you know, Hevs would hold it and, and... Peanuts would use a draw knife and start shaping it. And all by hand. Yeah, all by hand. There was no electric tools. And and by the way, when they got paid a hamburger and a beer, a hamburger was 10 cents then. Mm. So we're talking about the Depression. A hamburger was a dime. A beer was probably a dime, too. I don't remember, but I think it was. So you were not talking about big money then. So they're getting effectively 40 cents a day day to watch you. To watch me. And my dad was paying 20 cents for it or something. um, What was the beer back then that people were drinking? The big beer was Acme. Acme beer. And it was in stubby little bottles, okay. not long necks like we have now. So that was uh, the going beer. And, uh, you know, all the rest of them hadn't been invented then. Budweiser and yeah. 102 came later, and Lucky Lager was another oh, early yeah. one. How, how big were the hamburgers? Oh, they were like they are now, okay. 10 cents. Same size. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same yeah. size. So that was and so people lived on the beach you could have a tent and sleep on the beach and then the pier uh, was a wooden pier and it fell down we had a hurricane hit laguna in 1937 oh wow and knocked the pier down wow is that the f- there aren't, i mean i haven't heard of hurricanes well very often. i say it was a hurricane we called it a hurricane yeah. whether well, it was a big storm a big storm it blew a big surf big wind high tide yeah knocked the pier down oh, wow. and so all this lumber washed up on the beach and so hevs and peanuts and there was other guys bust mcknight rollo beck i knew all these guys they were seniors in high school or just out of high school so they went down and pulled all this wood that was on the beach valuable wood yeah, yeah well they made a, a house a house a shack yeah. uh right on the beach below victor hugo's or well which is now uh you know i can't remember the name of it now victor, oh is it with the uh, cliff house uh, yeah or, or no, not cliff um, um it's the it's the uh Las Brisas. Las Brisas. Yeah, yeah. That was called be, Victor Hugo's. I used to be Victor Hugo's. They should call Victor Hugo's again. That's a way better name. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, see, that was a vacant lot when okay. I was a little kid. And the artists all painted on that lot because, you know, where the little, there's still that little lookout. That's yeah, it's, there. A little, it's a lookout with like, almost like a little bay right there bay. where Main Beach So is, they yeah. could sit on that vacant lot and look down the Main Beach in the Hotel Laguna yeah. and paint that coastline. Right. And the first Festival of Arts was on that vacant lot. Oh, wow. 
Uh, but it wasn't living pictures. It, yeah, was, it was just, just art. Artist, art for sale. Yeah, art for sale. So did you know like Went and all these different artists? Well, know, like I, you know, they came guys? in the restaurant and I kind of knew who they were. Yeah. And a lot of these guys knew who I was because one time I was selling the LA Times used to have an afternoon edition. Yeah. And uh, I was and I was barefooted all the time. We, we went barefooted to school. Then. Mm. You didn't have to wear shoes. And I'm selling the afternoon edition of the LA Times and that was a, a nickel for the paper okay and i got a penny for selling it and so that's pretty good you got 20 percent. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, but i every summer my mom and my dad said you have to go earn enough money to buy a new pair of levi's to wear to school in september when school starts and a new pair of levi's cost two dollars and fifty cents <laughs> and we had to drive to santa Ana. there was no store and we're but if doing, you're doing it. it one penny at a time yeah, that's 250 that's, pennies. that's, that's right all, that's a fair bit of well i had change. to sell a lot of paper yeah, yeah, I had yeah. to sell 250 of them, right. and I'd sell maybe 10 a day. Yeah. Uh, and so then finally in September, end of uh, August, my mom would drive to Santa Ana and would buy a new pair of Levi's for school. Oh, that's awesome. But it was a different world then, and people... See in the in the depression. So you get one pair of pants. Well, maybe I they might have bought another pair for yeah, me. Yeah. I can't remember, but I remember I had to earn one. But in those days, people dressed up. I remember um, I can't think of his name right now, but he was in my dad's bar all the time, and he drove the lumber truck, the lumber uh, the Laguna Lumber Yard. Yeah, and out, the, <clears throat> out in the canyon. And he's well, it's not wasn't in the canyon. That's right where. Uh, Oh, it's right where the where the restaurant is. Where probably. the restaurant is now. Yeah, now called that, the lumberyard. That there. whole block was the lumberyard. It was, was all this, lumber stuff. Was the city council city hall still where? It's still where it is now. Yeah. Okay. And the uh, fire station was that was the fire station, police station, okay. city hall. That's all stayed. The that same. was all the yeah. same. But the block there on Forest Avenue was the lumberyard. So he drove a lumber truck, but he wore a coat and tie. I mean, like everybody was dressed up then. And see, this is where surfers became the image of surfing. And it really didn't even have an image in the 30s. It was after the war where it started to have, where surfers were not dressing in coat and ties. And, right. But the population was. You'd go to work with a coat and tie, and if you were successful, you had a vest, and you'd have a watch bob go across your vest. On a chain, yeah. That, that was a well, big deal. Back then, even the people running like gas stations were wearing yeah, shirts they're and dressed ties, up. right? Yeah. No, I mean, and, and it, I'm not trying to say this in a derogatory way, but you know, the idea of a beach bum and a surfer kind of being equated makes sense when you think of like Peanuts and Larson and have these guys effectively, I mean, in the... In the parlance of our times, they were effectively hobos or homeless guys hanging That's on right. the beach, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And so then it would be like a guy's going to change his trunks. And we didn't even have trunks in or cut off Levi's. Right. So I never had a pair of underwear until I was in the <laughs> Army. I even got drafted and didn't have a pair of underwear. That's so awesome. And when they had you drop your pants, I was standing there naked because we all would wear our trunks, which were cut off Levi's, under our regular Levi's. So when you go to the beach uh, after school, which we did every day, you'd just take off your long pants and, you'd have your, and you have your trunks on. You have your trunks on. <laughs> and That's so awesome. we never had any underwear, and we'd go barefooted to school. Yeah. And so the image was so contrasting to the, the way, parents right. that they were all dressed up. So right away, surfers were all hoodlums, kind of, and they looked the part. Well, you, you probably, I mean, you're, 
tanned, your your yeah, hair is yeah. lighter from the surf and the well, and you yeah. let your hair grow, and uh, uh, you know, going to get your haircut was a quarter then, but nobody had a quarter, and they didn't want to spend it. <laughs> they want to waste it on getting a haircut. Yeah, a haircut. Right? That wasn't going to help you. And I'm sorry about that. No, that's phone. okay. Um, you know what I can do? If you want, I can turn the turn uh, it off. I don't yeah, know how to turn it off. Turn this off. Um, so, so, so yeah. Well, so. So then, when it started, so that as became I became a lifestyle. That became like a yeah. So you right away you right? had an identity. Yeah, and you looked okay. You're a beach guy. Or you're a surfer. Right. And so then you would drop. You know, you'd have a car door open, and you'd drop your trunks because they're wet and sandy yeah. and you're drying off and then putting on your long pants yeah. and so Maybe. maybe somebody would see a cheek of a butt or something yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was oh my god that was really that was terrible real oh god then. that yeah, was yeah. unbelievable and so then you know fathers wouldn't let their daughters go out with a, a beach that? guy because he looked he had he had a reputation like a hell's angel right so hell's angels had that bad reputation and surfers had the same kind of situation only in a different way were you a lifeguard yeah of course did um I, this is i had heard this i was doing some research on the on the lifeguard you know on on the black ball, uh-huh. but um, but also and some stuff came up on the. I was talking to Chuck Herpick. Do you know? Chuck? Sure, I know him real well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think I think Chuck told me this. Um, he said that there used to be another level on the lifeguard Three tower. I was there. I was in there. And did they take the top level off because yeah. you guys were hanging up there drinking too much? Yeah. No, that's exactly. <laughs> no, Herpick didn't know that. I told him that story. Oh, yeah, yeah he's awesome. repeating my. But anyway, that was. The Union, so on the corner of Broadway and the Coast Highway, there used to be four gas stations. The Union Station, where it is now, the Mobile Station, where it is now, but then on the other side, the street... The Broadway on the, on the beach side went in there, you know, like a hundred feet. So there was a standard station on one corner okay. and a associated station on the other kind corner. Kind of where the lifeguard sta- station is today? No, well, it wasn't quite that far. Okay, but it would be right a, just before, like where the basketball courts are. Yeah, right where the basketball courts are. Amazing. And so the Union Station, the existing lifeguard tower, was the office where the Union Station is now. I watched them jack it up. My classmate, Dennis Jacobson, who became captain of the lifeguards, call him Jake, still alive uh, in Laguna, and I see him whenever I go down. Oh, cool. But he and I started playing together before kindergarten. Wow. So we've been friends for, I mean, like close friends. His mom and my mom were friends yeah. uh, for 80 seven years or That's whatever amazing, it is isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and we're still really good friends so it's really great to have that kind of longevity it's amazing but we watched them jack that up and move it to the lifeguard tower before there was a little wooden stand see when in that those days there were no paid lifeguards yeah. it was all volunteer so if you wanted to be a lifeguard you just showed up <laughs> down there in a pair of trunks oh that's amazing and so then Later on, just before the war, they would pay you a dollar. I think it was a dollar a day, uh, but only on Fourth of July weekend and Labor Day the weekend. Holidays. Yeah, yeah. The big holidays. Who organized it? Who was well, running the, it? Well, the police department or somebody did because yeah, yeah. somebody drowned, and and so the pier had been there, and the woods washing up, and guys are getting hit by stuff. Sure, and, well, you know that mid- kind of thing. So I grew up in you know in the Midwest in Grand Haven, this town that has big pier that sticks out where the Grand River comes out and and we get these violent storms Uh and you know people think it's a lake so they go out and you know there's a lot there's 
you know, a lot of, there's big sandbars and sure. we get undertoes and rips. And so people inevitably drowned, you know, all the time. And when I was growing up, the, if you were surfing or windsurfing, um, part of the deal was you're kind of supposed to keep an eye on Another tourists people. because you'd have to haul them out, you know, when they'd get stuck in rips and yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. And I think it sounds really similar to how, how you guys did it. I mean, we were, you know, it's a different time, but it was effectively where I grew up, the, the, the beachfront was less developed and it was kind of more like probably Laguna. Well, because there was, you really couldn't see the ocean. That's why people in Laguna said, we need a window of the ocean. That's when all those buildings where the main lawn is now, sure. that was all buildings there. Oh, wow. So there was restaurants and so, a barber shop and a donut kettle and a dance hall. Oh, wow. So we had a big dance hall there. And on the weekends, Stan Kenton would maybe be in Laguna and Les Brown would be in Newport Beach. Wow. And then on Saturday, they'd flip-flop. Oh, so cool. you had the big band era, and at 2 in uh, the morning, downtown Laguna, you couldn't walk on the sidewalk. Are you kidding? There was hundreds of people because they came down for those dances on Saturday night. So how did, they, how did the city, I mean, to make a decision to clear out all those businesses, what did, how did they do that? Well... I don't know because I lived in Hawaii. I moved to Hawaii, okay. So that that became that started to happen in the mid '60s, and they, uh, as different businesses were owned by individuals, and they got older and wanted to sell them, the city bought them basically. Okay, and then. And then the first day, Benton's, the first thing to go was the dance hall, which then became a bowling alley. <laughs> and then they, uh, that bowling was not as popular then. They tore that down, and it was a parking lot right there by the At beach. The beach yeah. And so then the city bought that. And then Benton's was a restaurant, and old man Benton died, and so they bought that, you know, as a Got gradual. It. And there were individual houses, so you had two layers. You had on the Coast Highway side, you had had the businesses and on the ocean side you had houses okay and a bunch of friends of mine lived in those little houses uh, i've got pictures of all of that oh that's great that i can show you at some point so i'll, it, I'll post some of these when i post this on okay. social media for the podcast there are, be great. There are old pictures that show laguna totally different yeah now, the hotel was there sure uh, but nothing in between then that's amazing so that all changed but getting back to your herpec story or which is I said, I'm sure I told it to her back, but it, they uh, moved. How close are you guys in age? You're pretty close, aren't you? Oh, no, he's got to be 10 years younger than I am, at least. More than that. Really? Okay. Well, I mean, Tom Morey was... Yeah, so he's like he, Tom's age, right? Yeah, he. well, Tom was way behind. I never knew him in school. Okay. Uh, it wasn't until he graduated that... So he's I, probably four... He's, was he about four years younger than... than well, Moby most was? of those guys, I'm 10 years. Most of them are 75 to 80. Okay. Got but, it. uh you know, they're all a little different ages. But I'm sure Herpex, I'd bet he's 76, 78, somewhere in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so we, they moved that building. They jacked it up, moved it, and tore down the wooden lifeguard tower and built a foundation for it and put this Union Station, which was a Spanish-looking building. Right. And it was kind of octagonal shape. Right. Which Is that the foundation of the that's what it is now oh wow but they built the foundation even with the with the boardwalk so you could walk straight into it and so it was a big tall thing with tile roof on it 
And so they made the lifeguard station, uh, you know, the, the main room when you walked into the ground floor was like eight feet tall. And we had a little uh, stair step, but it was a real steep one that went up into the ceiling. And then there was another room up there that had no windows. And then above that was the third story where they put all glass in that you would sit in and watch the beach and watch the ocean. Well, we started having parties as lifeguards in the center <laughs> section because they couldn't see in there, couldn't tell because the lifeguards were still up here. Yeah. And so we'd bring girls up there and have beers up there. <laughs> and a guy named Carl Mays was, a, he drove the local ambulance. Okay. And they somehow the city appointed him as head of the lifeguards. He didn't know anything about lifeguards, yeah. uh, but he just drove the ambulance, and they had parked the ambulance right... See, the, where, where my dad's restaurant was, there was, they made a big, wide sidewalk to the highway, so uh, where Ocean Avenue is. So it yeah. would be a continuation of Ocean that wide to get to the beach. And the, my dad's restaurant was on one side of that. On the other side was Loin's Drugstore okay. and the Smith Hotel, which was like a 10-room little hotel and a hot dog stand. So you'd walk in there. And the, the only police we had, we had a, a Dick uh, Smith was his name. Yeah. He, he was the first motorcycle cop. So he would park that right there at that intersection and drink coffee in my dad's restaurant. There was no stop signs in Laguna. No lights, no stop signs. Just PCH. Just PCH straight through. And then on the weekends... It was paved back then? It was. Well, I watched them pave it. It didn't used to be when yeah. I was a kid. First, they tarred it. Yeah. They just put tar over it. And it was two lanes. Yeah. Then they came by and widened it and poured concrete. Okay. And I put my initials in every... Took them about a, a week to go a block yeah. pouring the concrete. And so every Perfect week, for kids. I, yeah, 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 I yeah. put my initials in it. It must be in there a hundred times. That's awesome. <clears throat> but so then it was four lanes. And so in this era, we're talking about the late thirties now, uh, Carl Mays would park his ambulance there and Dick Smith would park his motorcycle right at the at Ocean Avenue where you'd enter the beach. So if there was a problem on the beach, the cop was close by and the ambulance was close by. Sure. So they appointed Carl as head of the lifeguards. And he didn't know anything about it, but he took his job seriously. He probably got paid 100 bucks a month or something. Oh, wow. For, I don't know. I'm just yeah, guessing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. He, but he was a tall, thin guy, and, and he was in charge. And so in those days, Laguna guys were the lifeguards. And this was after the war. This was in, must have been 46 or 7. Fullerton Junior College won the National Swimming Championship. And they had a bunch of really good swimmers. And so they all decided they were going to be lifeguards in Laguna. And they came down, you know, like we always started lifeguarding on Memorial Day weekend. And so they came down one Memorial Day win, and we were all hanging around. The lifeguard tower was just open. It was your clubhouse. Sure. And if you were surfing on the beach, that's where you hung. Now, if you were in other sports or whatever, you know, you didn't come down there so it's much. But, yeah. but there was 8 or 10 or 15 of us that that was our lifestyle. And so these Fullerton guys came down, and Carl's had his ambulance there, and he's there by the lifeguard tower. And uh, they said, well, we, wanna, we came down for the tests. And Carl looked around and said, well, there is no test. 
uh, to be. A, well, don't you have to have a swimming test to be a lifeguard? No, 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 no. We don't do that here. And they say, well, we we, we want to be lifeguards. Well. We'll swim. We'll do whatever you want. And uh, Carl's kind of put on the spot. He didn't know what to do. And he said, uh, you know, he's thinking, okay, boys, uh, everybody line up. Uh, and so, you know, we don't, we're looking at each other. What's yeah. he talking about, lining up? <laughs> and these guys were all really tall. I'm sure they were great swimmers. Yeah. And they were all taller than we were. And they lined up kind of behind us. And Carl said, uh, you know, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He says, okay, boys, uh, Whoever started kindergarten in Laguna Beach, take one step forward. And so, you know, we all started kindergarten together, and we take one step forward. And he said, uh, all right, these boys are hired. Uh, you're the local lifeguards. And the Florida guy, well, wait a minute. They don't know. How do you know they know how to swim and everything? And he said, these boys have local knowledge. Yeah, and that, local that was knowledge. it. And was, was that the first time you'd heard the term local knowledge? Yeah, and because all of a sudden it dawned on us, we weren't especially great swimmers. I don't remember. I've never swam like now. They swim out to a buoy and out around yeah, Bird got, Rock and everything. Yeah. We never did any of that. <laughs> but we knew how to swim, but yeah. nobody ever taught. We didn't have a swimming pool or anything. You just, we were in the water. When you were five years old, you just started swimming, you know. My, my older son did the lifeguard training. Test? Yeah, and you... You know, what you have to do is you have to swim from the lifeguard tower out to the buoy, which is probably a couple hundred yards out, and then you have to swim over to Bird Rock and back. The whole round trip, I think, is 800 yards or 800 meters, uh-huh. and you have to do it under 20 minutes. And they do it, they intentionally do it in like February in when the water's water, about 52 yeah. degrees. Oh, no, it's terrible. And you can't wear a wetsuit. Uh-uh. So what's funny is you'll see, it's kind of like this story, you'll see a lot of people show up from out of town who haven't, never, who've never swum in that cold water, water. in a Speedo, and... Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, you get these separate. There's a lot of people who look like great swimmers, but can't get past the surf because they can't breathe. Can't get, and, you know, that's right. Can't get out. Yeah, it's it's it's. it's well, tricky. that's the way it was. Only in those days, we didn't ever have to swim that far because most of the rescues it was helping a guy through the surf. Right. And it was in you know Woods Cove, and it's still uh, true today. No one's they're they're, not swimming swim. out to risk. Yeah. Yeah, they're all right there, in the, sure. and they get in a little riptide and they get scared around the rocks. Right. And we were in there ab diving all day long. We knew all those rocks. Sure. So local knowledge really was important. It matters, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we never had to swim very far. So, but that was always how the thing started. And I was just there for our reunion uh, in May. Yeah. And uh, I'm now. So Jimmy Flynn is the oldest living lifeguard. How old is he? He's 93. Oh wow. And uh, Dennis Jacobson, the guy I grew up with, he's six months ahead older than I am. Oh, my goodness. And he was, he's the second oldest lifeguard, and I'm now the third oldest living <laughs> lifeguard. Hang in there, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if that's good or bad. I think that's great. Um, so, th- so what year did you graduate high school? 47. 40, 47. So, so you've been out of high school for more than 60 years, for <laughs> yeah, 70 years. Yeah, long time. Um, so you graduated in 47, and then did, you said you went to college after that? Yeah, I went to college and graduated from college but I wanted to keep going because of the draft so then I got is that when you met Hobie well I I met him when I was a freshman okay uh, and in he was Ontario. A, in Ontario and the way I met him was a guy in my class it changed my first class first day of college uh, at Chafee College I sat next to a Phil Rifle and he was a neat guy and we had we played football together and ran track together and you know after we'd been friends and gone to school for a couple of months he said come on home with me after school he lived just down the street from the college on Euclid Avenue 
and uh, and we were going to do something. And so we get home, and he's got a younger brother named Stanley Rifle, who I, a good friend of mine, still lives in Montana. Oh, cool. And he and Hobie lived next door to each other. And Hobie was Stanley's age, and they were competing on making a wood shop project. And that's when I met Hobie. And I got to know him, but I didn't hang with him or anything because yeah. he was younger. Sure. And so then several years later, his dad buys the house in Laguna, and Hobie shows up uh, at Oak Street where I'm hanging out. And, oh, yeah, I remember you from Chafee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we renewed our little acquaintance, and he started, he made about 90, he thinks 88 surfboards in his dad's garage. Out of balsa? Out of balsa. Yeah. And uh, I have the first one he ever made for himself. Was that balls and fiberglass back then? Yes. Okay. And that's where Walter Hoffman had taken him to uh, L.A. and showed him how to buy balsa wood and got enough. He made a board for himself. Uh, he didn't like it after a couple of months yeah. and sold it to another guy who donated it to our museum. So I have... I've seen that board. I was with... Uh... I was with Jeff Alter, Hobie's uh, son, and who else? Who runs Hobie with Jeff? Is, who else is in there? Well, Mark Christie. Yeah, uh, the shops. Yeah, yeah. I know Mark. Oh was, no, Jake. Yeah, maybe it was Jake. So yeah. it was Jeff and Jake maybe showed me the. Was it the 001 or 002 or something? Well, no, like that? those weren't numbered. So okay. Uh, well, basically, what you're talking talking about the first board he ever made, we have in the museum, okay. and you probably haven't seen that one. Maybe or maybe yeah. And then know. he made another one from himself. And that might be the one Jeff has. That has the number on it. Well, they didn't put numbers. So the the first 88, Hobie, I mean, he and I have talked about this at length. He couldn't remember, but he thinks it was 88, but he says about 90 surfboards he made in that garage. Didn't number any of those. Okay. Didn't no logo, nothing on those. Then his dad built a two-car garage, 20 by 20 in Dana Point. I keep looking. I've got all these pictures. Those are all Sun Valley. Sun Valley, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> That's where I hang out. We'll have a beer there we'll tonight. We'll go to Pioneer Saloon yeah. later. Cool. <laughs> uh, so, um, anyway, Hobie built another board for, well, for several of us. But uh, he didn't build one for me because I had gotten a new board. Dale Velzi yeah. was also making boards under the pier, and there was no shops. <laughs> so Hobie made them in his dad's garage, and he'd make them during the summer. And then he started going with a local Laguna girl named Sharon. She got pregnant. They got married. And so all of a sudden, Hobie is like 19 years old. Was that Tom Morey's girlfriend before Hobie's? I don't think so. But Tom certainly knew her, because okay. I, think, I think Sharon was in about Tom's class. He told uh, me that they... Well, I think I think Tom maybe, introduced him. Maybe that's what it was. I yeah, think yeah, Tom yeah. introduced him. I remember that now. Tom Moore uh, invented the boogie board, effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he went to Laguna. We're great friends, as yeah. always. And uh, uh, all those guys were, you know, as you grow up, the younger guys are not, when they, everybody's like a teenager or 20, it's all the same. Right, but right. But when you're in high school, it's, it's a big really difference. Different. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I didn't even know Tom in high school. I don't remember him. But anyway, he was behind me about 10 years, I think. Yeah. He's, um, he's like Chuck's age. I think he and Chuck but, well, he didn't grow up there. I mean, he came to Laguna when he was like in the ninth grade or something. Okay. So he didn't start there early. Usually the guys that grew up there, you just kind of knew them from seeing them around town. Sure, you sure. Know, even though they were way younger than you. So, um, so Hobie's dad made this garage 
down in Dana Point. And the reason it was Dana Point, there was nothing there. Dana Point didn't exist. Right. There was no town. There was maybe 10 houses scattered around in a five-mile Radius. Were they still throwing cowhides off the cliff? Yeah, well, no, they weren't doing that, <laughs> no, but joking. it was close to that. <laughs> that and, was from the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, yeah. that happened a long time ago. Yeah. But there was no, as I say, fire, police, post, none of that stuff. So then Hobie went down there. That's when he started n- numbering the boards. Okay. And he started at 100 because he figured he made 90 in the garage. So he started at 100. And so... We have a bunch of those boards too, so that's when they became numbered. Got it. Yeah, and then yeah. he had a different logo they put on them. Eventually, a little surfboard, and then it grew and different, and finally has the Hobie name on them. And have you, I noticed there's a pretty good Hobie display at the Orange County Airport, Airport. at John Wayne. Is that something that the Surfing Heritage put together? Well, we did. Yeah, we've done that a couple of, of years there, now, yeah. and it was so popular yeah. that we've done it three times, I think, and. So, see, what's happened now, because I was involved with Hobie all the time, I have most of the Hobie pictures and all that stuff, but Jeff and Mark Christie, because of the Hobie shops that I started, I don't own those anymore. Right. Does Mark own those now? And Mark, I got Mark to buy those. Oh, cool. When, when I sold them, I, I sold them four times and got them back four times. <laughs> and so the last time, see, I had 22 stores then and 12 in Hawaii. Yeah. And so they were scattered all around. And they couldn't figure out how to run them because they had different uh, marketing, different kind of customers in Hawaii versus here. I think Bob Buck told you know Bob Buck? You know, one of Spike Atkinson's buddies, but you know Spike. I know Spike. Yeah, he had told me, I think he told me a little bit about the last, when Mark got involved. But Well, what happened yeah. is they went, to bankruptcy and the bankruptcy court called me to take them back again i said i'm not going to do it but i will get you a buyer for a couple of the stores okay so i knew dana point and laguna were the two best ones close together and mark was a realtor and a young guy and he grew up in laguna i knew him all his life right so i went to mark i said mark you ought to buy these so his sister laurie is married to jeff right Right, right, so right. that was all kind of in the family. I said, that way we can keep it in the family. And so I got Mark to put up the money from the bankruptcy court to buy just those two stores, Dana Point and Laguna. Right. The other ones I sold to other people. Okay. Yeah, so Jeff and Lori uh, have kids that are about the same age as Sarah and I. Mm. Um, so we kind of sure, you know each other from soccer that. and all that stuff. Yeah. And we surfed down. In, Spike has a place down in, or just sold his place on the East Cape, but right near where... Where, where their place is oh, down there. down there. there. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I used to go down there with Hobie. Hobie only went there twice. He didn't like it. Yeah. And but Mickey's, you know, Mickey Munoz, Munoz is, is down still there. there. And I think yeah. Walter Hoffman goes down there. No, or... Walter didn't go anymore. Okay. Uh, but uh, J- John Freeze goes down. That's what, okay. And uh, Flippy's house he gave That's to his I'm girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Well, that Susie goes down there. That's what it is. Okay. So there's, you know, there was a, a whole clan of us. I didn't buy down there because all my friends had houses. You I didn't need them. You don't need another <laughs> when one. When I lived there. in Hawaii, see, for 25 years. Where'd you live? Well, mostly in Oahu, but 10 years in Maui. Oh, great. So I ran all the Hobie stuff. or own, See, I owned all the Hobie stuff. It wasn't, I, I ran so, it and owned so you're it. Owning, you're, how many shops did you have in Hawaii? 12. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of yeah. moving and parts. And then I took on, I had the distributorship for Hobie catamarans for the South Pacific. Wow. So, you know, I had plenty to do in Hawaii, but because in those days, airfare was $100, I'd fly back to Laguna at least once a month. Sure. One year I went 13 round trips. Wow. Uh, but most of the time, it'd be 10 or 12 or whatever. Yeah. So I was 
on, there I'd always come on a weekend when there'd be a party sure. so a lot of guys in Laguna they thought I lived there all the time <laughs> they didn't miss <laughs> me because I hit all the social events <laughs> right. and um, you know I was there but I didn't live there then I was sure. in Hawaii so <clears throat> that was a whole different life and we can talk about that later on too so, so, so I guess maybe where we could kind of because I want to do two at least two interviews um, you know if we can do that today and we'll, we'll post them separately but I think this one you know, the thing about Laguna, I think, is really fascinating is how the environment kind of created this idea of adventure lifestyle, or you kind of were living it. You weren't really thinking about it that way, probably. Um, but that lifestyle kind of evolved into businesses and right into entrepreneurship, I guess, because people had to feed themselves and they were trying to make money doing things they right. loved, right? So it went from Hobie's in the garage doing shaping balsa, um, Velzy's under the under the pier, in shaping Manhattan his board, Beach. Manhattan Beach. At one point, there was a. I know there's a story about Grubby Clark bringing and bringing foam, and those guys figuring out how to do foam blanks. And I think in the garage, right? Well, the way that all happened, because I was involved every step of the way. And, and, and well, just so what I'm curious, and I want to hear that story. Um, how did it evolve into a business from kind of a hobby or a vocation? Well, I think. There's a whole bunch of questions there. So, sorry, sorry. That. Go ahead. I'll, <laughs> but, let you, I'll let you talk. Well, the, we don't the, want to hear. Yeah. The foam. Hobie invented the foam, but he couldn't. He wanted to sell it to all the other board manufacturers. Grubby were Grubby grew up in Whittier, and okay. Grubby did go to Pomona College and got an engineering degree. Okay. So he knew about engineering, and the rest of us didn't. You know, my degrees were in just business and teach. I didn't have a, I went there to get laid and go surfing. I mean, that, that's all I wanted. I had no interest in trying to learn anything. But Grubby did, and Grubby came down and worked for Hobie in the summertime, and I was patching boards. And Hobie actually created the foam, and he couldn't sell it. Velzy put ads in the magazines about flexi flyers and how bad it was. And so Hobie one day said to Grubby, I'll give you the foam factory and business i mean he hadn't made any that really worked yet okay and but they we were working on it and i was the first employee at clark phone so hobie said call and, and, it clark phone call it whatever you want clark phone became the that was, effectively the only supplier of phone to the entire surfing industry eventually, well right? it was at first but then yeah. there's foss foam okay and then there's other foams that came into being walker foam right so those came into being right after hobie so there was competition but hobie was ahead and as a result grubby was ahead and grubby took it to a whole nother level yeah i mean i can talk for an hour on that because i was the only employee that grubby had wow so <clears throat> during that time all this was changing see balsa wood only has grown in ecuador and bolivia oh, i didn't know that and so it's really hard to come by and when in the early 60s the, the demand went to the moon. Wow. And and so at first we were just buying individual sticks of balsa wood. Then Hobie would buy a whole bale and Velzi would buy a bale and all of a sudden there's no more balsa wood. Right. And so it was running out. They're cutting down the forest. Yeah. And it was obvious to Hobie in particular, Velzi didn't care because he was like I was. He was chasing girls and drinking too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> Velzi was a great guy. I, I have a great picture of him uh -huh. where he's... He's got got a handle, you know, and he's just standing there chugging right out of a handle. It's a, I mean, I, I like the photo because it just shows kind of the, the enthusiasm for life. Well, he was, no, he was a great guy. Yeah. And I tell you a lot of Velzy stories too, but uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I'm trying to stay on track here. So I'm going to back up for a minute. When I was a kid and at the bar, 
when my dad would go to the bank and I would ten borrow. Say so you could ten bar then if your name was on the liquor license, which Metz was, yeah. you could be fifteen. And so, <laughs> but I didn't ten bar all day long. Sure. But my dad would say, "Hey, watch the bar. It's quiet. I got to go to the bank. I got to see the attorney or whatever it was." Well, and it made sense. It was a family family business. deal. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So I started tending bar, and at first I'd just get him a beer, and then my dad showed me how to Mixed make drinks. drinks and stuff. Yeah. So by the time I was fifteen, sixteen. I was a full-fledged bartender. So my dad would let me in there because he wanted some time off or do books or whatever it was. So these guys would come to the bar, and this is before the war, and there was a guy named Charlie Furlong. I can remember all these guys like it was yesterday. He was an engineer. First off, he was either light or light, a featherweight boxing champion of the world wow. at one time, Charlie Furlong. But he was an engineer, and he was working in Brazil building um, bridges. And so he would go down for six months, and he had a house at the top of the world, and he'd come back and be here for six months. Okay. Every time he'd come back, he was a good friend of my dad's, a good customer. He'd come in and have a beer, and he'd always bring an exotic animal home with him. And he'd have <laughs> one time he'd have a parrot on his shoulder. Sure. The next time he'd have a couple of monkeys. And one time he came with a black panther on a leash. You're kidding me. He brought it right in the bar. You could fly those. You know, there was no restrictions. Sure, then. sure, sure. And so it his... Was the panther well, well managed? Yeah, well, he was until one day he tied him. We had a booth like this we're sitting on yeah. with a metal, a post, yeah. and he tied the leash around that, and the panther would lay in the booth, and Charlie would be at the bar drinking and telling some story, and the panther got mad, and he, it was rawhide, that kind of phony leather, yeah. uh, and he just tore the whole booth apart. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but but otherwise, he was pretty tame. He never hurt anybody. So, <clears throat> so I'm getting these stories from Charlie about Brazil and animals coming into the bar, and then the war started, and my folks got divorced. My dad went in the service right away he joined the merchant marine and he was in the merchant marine for four years i didn't see him for four years wow. and he wrote me i did see him he came to san pedro a couple times for a few days while they're loading the ship and i went down and had lunch with him but basically i didn't see him for four years so he's writing me he was at guadalcanal he was wow. uh, you know at all these big war things delivering stuff yep. and would send me letters and pictures and stuff so that i'm looking at maps you know where the hell is guadalcanal yeah. and then he was uh in the fiji islands and you know he was in the tuamatus and all these different oh, yeah. things and so i would get and he would bring home he brought me a spear from bougainville uh, where's that that was in the solomon islands oh wow and um you know different stuff that he'd pick up that he thought a kid would like right and so i got interested in that and he's got pictures i still have pictures of his ship going the suez canal and you know i got interested in where all these places are so I didn't pay attention at history or geography class, but then you had a reason to look it up. Right. And so I started reading about these places, and then movies came out. I remember uh, the uh, diving movie of... Uh, Jacques Cousteau? No, well, but be long before that was the giant pearl at Pango Pango. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. it had a guy stuck with his foot in a giant, giant clam. clam yeah. And they're trying to get pearls and stuff out of there. And so where's Pango Pango? And I looked that up. So I got interested in geography 
from. So let's ch- let's hold this thought and put a pin in it because I want to do a separate okay. uh, podcast about how you got into travel because that spawned a whole other thing. A whole other thing. Let's let's wrap this. Oh, up. but you wanted to know how surfing started. Yeah, how, how it became it, how 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 it turned into how it went from a passion to a business. Well, what happened is that we were growing up, and we never thought about making money. Right. It was always just a lifestyle. Another quick story to give you that background, laying on the beach and using the sand as our blackboard. I'm a sophomore in college then, and I have to come up with a major. And we're all laying around, five or six of us. I can't remember who. Hobie was there. And uh, I said, God, i got to come up with a major. You know, be a lawyer, a doctor, or whatever it is. You know, make a big list and everything. And And Hobie said, no, 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 that is too long a list. He said, let's make a list of what we don't want to do, and then we'll know that'll shorten it way up. Not to-do list. And so first off, Hobie said, I don't want to, and we never had a coat and tie. So Hobie said, I don't want to ever have to wear a coat and tie to work. That's awesome. And and we all all absolutely didn't have a coat. We said, we all agree to that. And I said, number two, I went barefooted to school in Laguna, and if I never had a pair of leather shoes. I did have tennis shoes or flip-flops. I said, I don't want to ever have to wear leather shoes. Yeah. And so we thought, okay, what else do we not want to do? And somebody said, we're laying on the beach, and you know how it is in Laguna. I literally so, posted two weeks ago. We call it, you know, guys my age, we call it corn dogging. You go uh, go in the water, you get cold, and you roll in the hot sand. Roll in the hot sand. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what we did because we never had a towel, right. ever had a yeah. towel. It ruins You'd the pull, beach. Yeah, <laughs> you pull up that warm sand. feels really good. And so somebody said, well, for sure, we don't want to work across the coast highway. We want to work on the ocean side. <laughs> that narrows things down a little bit. <laughs> so that really cut them down. So what could you do? You could be a fisherman. You could be a bartender, you could be a lifeguard, or you could make surfboards. Yeah. And so Maybe Hobie all four. <laughs> and so Hobie said, "Well, I'm making surfboards. I'm going to just stay with that." And I was ten and bar by then. When I was twenty-one, I told my dad, "I'm going to go down the street in ten bar where I get paid because my dad never paid me." Right. And so I was ten and bar at the Sandpiper. Oh yeah, <laughs> and so, I'm still there. And, and it's still there. That dirty bird. Yeah, I was ten bar at night. Who owned it then? Uh, well, the same family, Jeannie, Chuck, you know Chuck? Or Chuck's Chuck's mom was Jeannie. She owned it. And uh, I rented the apartment right in back on Brook Street. Oh, yeah. So I surfed Brook Street every day. It was my home break. It's the same apartment? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was right upstairs on the corner of Brook Street. Yeah. Look right down the street and check the surf on Second Reef. Yeah. So, um, I'm goofy foot. That's one of my favorite waves. Oh, no, that's a great wave there. Yeah. And it only breaks on that south swell. But when it's good, it's really good. Yeah, it's got to it's be pretty south for it to bend in. Yeah. It's great. So that, with my dad in the Merchant Marine. So that framework that was there. That's what you're going to end up doing. And then, so we're all now, we're, you know, I, by then I'm probably 20 six seven eight whatever um and hobie and those guys are 20 and so hobie's married he's got to have a real job and so okay we're making surfboards but we saw a picture in the la times that tilted wave of downing woody brown uh and velzy velzy was in the water uh guys surfing him a kaha and that came when it was la times you've seen that picture and so god we got to go to hawaii right and so uh, when i got out of uh, college, uh, I got you couldn't fly there. Pan Am could fly there, but it cost a fortune to go on a regular plane 
couldn't make it from L.A. You had to go to San Francisco because it's shorter. Okay. To go and then, but I went on the Lure Lane, one hundred and forty dollars round trip on the Lure Lane from L.A. to Honolulu. And How back. long did that take? Five days. Wow. And so I had. Was Ma- it comfortable? Oh, it was great. I yeah. had Matt Kivlin make a brand new balsa board under a tree at the Sip and Surf Bar in Santa Monica. That was Sip and Surf was a bar in Santa Monica. And he made it out underneath that tree and took him a month to make it. You know, he'd work on it a day here and half a day. And uh, put that on the Lurling and took it to Honolulu. And I really, I came back. Well, there's a lot of other stories I could tell you about my life in that period. But um, I stayed over there for a couple of years back and forth and surfed the North Shore and lived in a Quonset hut with Buzzy Trent oh, wow. and Walder and all of us. Uh, surfed at Makahana in the summertime because they were all in the service. Walder knows. I'd already gotten out. I, I had the GI Bill. Did you know Curran as well? Oh, yeah, but he Pat wasn't Curran. there then. Okay. He's, it was later. Yeah. Uh, Tom Pat, Pat Curran is 10 years young. He's like... He's like 81 now. Or okay. So yeah, he was Tom he's not, dad. Yeah, he's Tom Kern's dad. Yeah, yeah. And he was behind me. So he didn't come over until, see, I went there in 53. Okay. And Tom didn't come over there until 61 or something. So was was the, so you guys were living on the North Shore then? Mm-hmm. Was Makaha no, too busy? Or? Not the North Shore. Lived okay. in Makaha. Makaha. Nobody surfed. See, first, so the, when so we were on the West Side. When we first went there, the Hawaiians were still surfing hot curls and redwoods. Right. And they didn't have... Uh, Rocker the hot, and fit and Yeah, none of that. Forms. And so yeah. I'm bringing over basically a Malibu chip. Right. Is what I brought over. A cat okay. Matt Kivlin shaped it. And so when they, you know, we let them... The reason we got along so good with the Hawaiians, well, first off, there was no Howleys there. Right. We were the only ones. It was all friendly back and then. And it was totally friendly. And we let them use our new boards and so they loved that. Sure. And we, we were just good friends. I mean, Rabbit and Jama and, you know. Well, there weren't that many guys in the water back then either, right? And Well, they were beach boys then. Yeah. And, and we were just living on the beach like they were. And we were, we'd play together. We'd socialize. We'd hustle their girlfriends. They didn't even care. And you met Duke, and I assume? Oh, yeah. I surfed with Duke a lot. I mean, I've got pictures of me with Duke. I mean, I could have had 100, but uh, yeah, yeah. he was just a beach guy. One of the guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think I've got a yeah, I've got a picture right up there in the so wall. You must know Paul Stroud too. And oh well, Paul, I've known him since he was a kid. He really—he took my younger brother and I. Probably it's probably dating myself 10, 15 years ago. But we we were over there with the California Hawaii Beach Club. Uh-huh. I think that's what they call it. And uh, he, we went all over with him. He took us all over to all these great spots that are kind of off the beaten track a little bit. And, well, uh, Paul knows Hawaii. Sure See, does. he's on my board of directors. Oh, he is. Heritage. Oh, fantastic. So yeah, he lives. He's in- another guy that's way. Way older than he looks. Like you guys both look yeah, twenty he, years younger than you. But are. he's he's like eighty now. But he he looks really good. You yeah, know? And he's in good shape. You no, know? I mean I see Paul all the time. We've been friends for seventy years or whatever it's yeah, been. Yeah. So he was on Duke's team, right? He was on. The, yeah, yeah. Well, it was Fred Hemmings, Paul, Joey Cabell, and Butch Van Artsdale. That's right. And they were Joey and Butch were on the Hobie team, and they stole them. Uh, from from me from my Hobie because right. when I opened the Hobie shop I had all these guys in the Hobie team and the, the Duke team were all pop out surfboards okay and so they didn't want to ride those so we had special boards made with their logo the on them, but they weren't the pop outs and so and that's when the like the the triple crown was the Duke contest right yeah 
Well, that, but that all came a little later. A little There's later. a okay. lot of history before that. Okay. So um, anyway, I was in Hawaii. And so then when you come home and we heard there's waves in Mexico. Well, then I went to graduate school in Mexico. I had the GI Bill. So I went to the University of Hawaii on my master's in <laughs> uh, like Mexico City yeah. uh, also. Oh, cool. I, I just went. I didn't want, Mexico City's a great place. I wasn't place. trying yeah. to learn anything, but I, I had the GI Bill. And that was a lot of money. Yeah. I could go to Mexico, rent an apartment, have a maid, fly to Acapulco every weekend on the GI Bill. <laughs> I mean, it was it was great. Best deal on And buy booze and chicks. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. it was. I was living like a king. So uh, it was just a way of life. It wasn't a learning experience. Right, I right. mean, I was never. Well, you learned something, but it wasn't in, out of the book. Yeah, right? no, no, definitely not in the book. <laughs> so. So then we got, okay, there's Mexico has some waves. Hawaii has some waves. And so then we heard about, well, Australia's got to have waves. So in... Uh, so you discovering spots at this point. Well, at that point, the Hawaii, uh, the outrigger, took a surf team to Australia in 57, I think it was. And um, several guys that I knew from the outrigger went to Australia. It was the Outrigger Beach Club in, or the Outrigger Club, Club in, 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 Honolulu. in Honolulu. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think they paid for the way. I don't remember how it worked. But they took four guys. Greg Knoll went on that. Okay. Uh, and they they had a contest and they paddled and, so there got, and Duke went too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they left their boards over there and showed Aussies how to make because they didn't have the balsa wood and all that was still balsa. Foam, foam didn't come out until 1959 and 60. Okay. So those were balsa boards so that they then had the state of the art and started making some boards there gordon woods uh came over and worked for hobie so there got to be a little bit of sharing knowledge of of that kind of thing back and forth so we knew australia had waves so we're thinking god there's got to be waves in europe and other places and africa was the dark continent you know there's no phone calls now movies surf movies hadn't been made except bud brown and bruce had made little local movies right about, right well makaha we didn't surf on the north shore we wanted to go over there surfed Haleiwa and chun's reef on the north shore on yeah. the north shore but we couldn't really we t- went out at sunset a couple times but, but that's we, such a hollow way yeah, yeah. we couldn't you know you'd lose your board and you had yeah. to swim yeah. and we didn't have leashes and yeah, you know it's a lot of work it didn't work you yeah, know yeah. but makaha we lived right there and we could go into that channel you could swim in pretty easy yeah and it was a better deal so we stayed at makaha that's great and didn't surf i mean waimea pipeline we looked at all that but you couldn't it wasn't surf it. wasn't the right yeah the right have for equipment. those boards yeah. yeah so it just didn't work so but the that became the impetus of talking about where else there might be surf. Yeah. And so <clears throat> during that time, um, there was two magazines, men's magazine, there was no Playboy then. Yeah. And there was uh, uh, True and Argosy. Okay. And they were men's adventure magazines. Okay. And they would have pictures of topless gals, uh, and they'd write some article about, <clears throat> like, Pango Pango and diving. And it would be half phony, but they'd make it romantic-sounding. It'd and, be fun to read. And great reading. And so my dad had a liquor store after the restaurants. He had a liquor store in Huntington Beach. And by then, I had gone six years to college. I had three... BAs and a master's, but none of it meant anything. Yeah. When I say that, I'm not bragging about I, I didn't I learn it. anything. No, you, you had a big incentive to stay in school. Yeah, I you, just wanted to it. go to school because I had a free ride. Yeah. <clears throat> so 
my dad said, you got to go up. And it's time you settle down. And by then I was 27 or 8. Yeah. And maybe I was... No, which, I was thirty by then. Which back then that was a long. That yeah. was pretty. Most people had have had, had jobs by, by then. then. Right? Yeah, yeah, had yeah. families and everything. And I didn't. So I went up and ran the liquor store and it went broke. I went surfing every day in Huntington <laughs> Beach. The thing went down. It got robbed. I had this girlfriend. We were going to Tijuana, the bullfights, yeah. getting drunk, having too much fun. I'd come back to the liquor store three days later. It had been robbed or broken into. Something always happened. Yeah. And so. I said, I got to get out of here. So <clears throat> I fired all the employees, and I, li- I put an army cot, and I got an army cot for my girlfriend, put her in the, we slept in the storeroom of the liquor store, and I ate three meals a day out of the deli case, bologna sandwiches, oh, wow. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Jeez. And I, I worked that seven days a week from 7 in the morning to 11 at night. And reading these magazines because it'd be slow in between. Sure. And I gotta get out of here. This is killing me. So Disneyland was being built. Okay. And you had to. They had to have a liquor license, and you only have so many liquor licenses per county. And so I told them, guys, boy, this place is for sale. You sold your liquor license <clears throat> to Disneyland. I sold it to Disneyland, and. I had I owed the bank, and I didn't know it. My dad had signed on it, but my dad gave me the impression that I was responsible. Yeah. And I was always a responsible kid. Whatever I did, even though I was a little shaky, yeah. I was responsible. So Well, I, you came back and lived in the store to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so I learned the business, kind of, and... So we sold it. I paid off all the suppliers, Young Market, Western, all the dealers that I owed money to, paid the bank the final payment on the liquor store, and I had $2,100 left. And I hadn't paid myself in because I was just living in the store. Right. So I had 2100 bucks. I sold a car for 50 bucks, and I even had a Hoffman Easy Vision television. Okay. had a screen about like that. I sold that for 50 bucks. So I had $2,200, <laughs> and I said, I am out of here. And I learned through reading these books, magazines, that there was, there was no airport in Tahiti. So I wanted to go five places I wanted to go. Tahiti, because I had bare-breasted girls, and I wanted to see a lot of boobs. <laughs> well, I mean, in those days, there's no bikinis, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the see, the pill hadn't come out yet. The sex life, I mean, that's a whole nother It was fairly restricted, thing. yeah. Oh, was it restricted? No, it wasn't restricted, sorry. <laughs> that I can tell you how it was. I mean, a guy could not get laid. I mean, it was impossible in high school. It just didn't happen. And so that there was the culture that I'm talking about during the Depression, right after the war. Well, if you read Mutiny on the Bounty or any of those, right? I mean, that's just, that basically set the stage for Tahiti. Where yeah. It's, it some felt like this place where... The Magic were, place. Yeah, this, women were naked and they were willing to please you. And, you know, it was just kind of the perfect perfect place for us. Well, so that was number one on my target. <laughs> so, okay. I, so, so let's... Um, this, so we're going to get into the travel side of your okay. story. And I want that to be the second one because I think okay. it's really good. So just to wrap this up, I, I think what you're saying is basically you guys made a decision that this is the life we're going to live. This That's is right. what we're, we're going to figure this out. And people kind of picked their spots. And then Hobie started shaping boards. You started helping him turn that into a business. You guys created the shop down in Dana Point. Right. And then you started doing making more of those shops. You put some in Hawaii and you put them in the coast. Well, I didn't then. Uh, but what happened, you're exactly right. So we, we're talking, we're getting older. Hobie's got three kids by then. Yeah. Hobie's going to make surfboards. And 
<clears throat> I'm patching, and I'm not I'm not a great craftsman. So I thought, well, that's not for me. But because I had the liquor store, I'd taken it up, taken it down. Uh, I understood that. I'd attended bar. I'd taken business courses in college. Sure. But didn't learn much, but some of it probably stuck. Yeah, yeah. And so... I knew that we wanted that lifestyle. We committed on the beach. We're not going to wear a coat and tie right. or shoes. So what else was there? So I was going to ten bar at night yeah. and do business stuff around surfing in the daytime. Wow. So then this trip came along, and that changed everything. But up until that point, so Grubby was just starting. I was the first employee there. When I left was Clark Foam. You know, yep. in 1958, I was pouring blanks for Grubby. Wow. And that's when I left. Uh, and it, But they weren't right. They weren't working right. So we didn't know that. See, the technical aspects, when we made, Hobie made this mold out of cement and steel. Yep. It was really heavy. And we would mix the chemicals up I would. I was the guy that did all that. And we had a, you know what, a, in a wood shop, a drill press was. Sure. Well, we put an egg beater where the drill bit would normally go. Right. So we'd pour the chemicals in a bucket, set that on the flat plane of the drill press, and then he'd pull that wheel down, and the egg beater would go spin in there up. and the spin around. Well, you'd hold it with one hand so it wouldn't fall apart, and you didn't really get it all mixed up. Some of it would be on the edges when stick, and yeah, yeah. you know, you'd kind of move it around like this, but it wasn't a thorough mix. And so then we'd pour it in the mold, but the humidity and the temperature, which we didn't understand, was changing all day long. And so we'd clamp the lid down, and it would be like a waffle that didn't quite make it to the edge. It might have made it to the edge, but on the ends, it was real soft, and in the center, it was hard as a rock. Okay. And it was, why is it doing this? And it was because it wasn't mixed in total, and you'd start at one end and Pour it down the other. So you get different And you get different stuff at different places. And so those first foam blanks had big, we call them pock holes. And we patched it because the foam was expensive. We couldn't waste it. So we patched that with a Bondo kind of stuff. And here you had a blank that had these big (laughs) blister bongos on them patched up. So all the first boards we called Easter egg boards. And they were three colors. You could get them white, light blue, or kind of a pink. And those were the three choices you had. But that was pigment, which was heavier, and it cost more to do that. So right away, we've got to get these blanks better, you know, where the foam was clean. Well, that took two years. Now, Grubby figured that out over a two-year period. So from the time I left, well, I was gone three years, but from the time I left, we were working on that, but we couldn't figure it out. And then he moved, this was in the canyon at Laguna, okay. what we called the Skunk Works. Okay. And nobody knew about that, me, Grubby, and Hobie, and a couple other people. And then when I was gone, Grubby opened the thing on Crown Valley Parkway okay. and built that tilt-up that building. The, yeah, that, that was Clark Foam. Clark Foam. <clears throat> Crown Valley Parkway was a dirt road oh my in goodness. those days. It's main throw for yeah. Now. yeah. <laughs> and so the time I was gone, when I came back, Grubby had foam was clean. So in 61, when I came back, then you didn't have to pigment them anymore and save the weight and the cost. So all that. So we became gradually aware through experimenting about expense, cost. So 
uh, like nobody, we didn't make wholesale prices. We didn't have any margin because originally everybody's making a surfboard in their dad's garage. Right. There was no cost. Right. There's no overhead cost. Right. They weren't getting any wages and a guy would make a surfboard and make 20 bucks and he was happy as a lark. Sure. Well, when Hobie got married, that was okay when he was living at home. All of a sudden now he's paying rent. He's got to buy his kids food and that's not enough. So you had to get a better margin. How do you do that? Well, get rid of the pigment. You know, there's all these yeah. costs that we found out about. And we just learned from experience how to hone in on that, raise the price a little bit, and and so you could make a profit on it. And that, see, there was no close up until then. So when I came home from the trip, see, everything changed the time I came home. From the late 50s, it was balsa board, running out of balsa wood. Foam wasn't really right. Cut-offs. wasn't yeah. buying it. Uh, no, no OPs then or yeah. uh, hang 10 yet. So when I came home, and it wasn't because I came home, but it was in 1961, is when by then the giant leap into the big Popular. volume and the m- movies had started to come out. Surf Magazine came out in 61, I think, okay. 62. Yeah. And so people around the world didn't know about any of these other places. There was no communication. Phones you couldn't. To phone Hawaii was like next to impossible, static and echo, and you couldn't hear anybody, so that didn't work. So, you know, it was just a different world. All of a sudden, by 62 and 3 and 4, in those early 60s, the world changed as far as surfing was concerned. And that's when it all started to scale up yeah, and you had more shops yeah, everything. and production. You had gotten, you, you had that time to get production right. So yeah. you, uh, Well, we, we figured that out. By then, the production was pretty good. And we had a little, you know, the way we had shapers and, and we had them all. We had a form and a guy would shape. He would initial the shaping so you could tell who shaped it, who glassed it, who hot coated it who did everything right down the line. So we got organized. We had numbers on those. And so then you could order a board. You'd write up how you wanted it. And that would go, had a little process. And yeah, yeah. So, you know, we just, but this was a gradual thing that really took 10 years. So Hobie started in 1950, but just in the summers and part-time. Sure. And then that in that 10 years, we got to that point. Right. And then, and then from... Once Gidget comes out, it the whole thing the whole thing changes. exploded, and, and the magazines come out, yeah. and then Bruce and Bud Brown both making movies, and all of a sudden they're showing them in high school auditoriums. So everybody start, and now boards are you don't have to patch them. You know the foam was impervious to the water. That changed a lot of stuff. So you had the benefit of of growing demand with a passion that got you to a good enough production level where you could scale. Could do that. And you both, in, you know, and you're, you have the benefit of living in Southern California with the rising economy where people yeah. have the free time and the money to spend on well, it. Exactly, because the, the, all the military guys that lived on back where you did, yeah. and they came to California for the training bases and everything, like, they, wanted to stay, yeah, yeah. they wanted to stay in California. Right. So the population boomed and the money, the jobs, and they wanted recreation. So everything kind of came together. You know, it was the perfect perfect wave. Yeah, Yeah, that's awesome. Well, let's put a pin in this one. This has been a phenomenal, uh, I think, you know, I I wanted to capture the the history and the feeling and and what it was like in Laguna coming up to that point. Because, you know, the good thing is we had painters painting, you know, in the early 1900s. There's, There's images, you know, black and white photos. 
but to hear what it was like actually living there then that's that's hard to find because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know because people are getting older so i really appreciate capturing this thank you for that dick and we'll we'll start the second one in a minute on um on your history of travel and how that evolved into the surf films and, and the broader lifestyle. All right, I look forward to it. Awesome. Well, this has been the Kick Aspirational Podcast. This is part one with Dick Metz from the Surfing Heritage Museum, and uh, we'll call this one Laguna Beach. And uh, the next one will be all about the travel and the journey and the places that that, that this lifestyle took, Dick. <laughs>